following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Last Sunday, if you weren't here, we've covered the first half of verse 11, which says... um, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And uh, we talked about the first step in overcoming sin, the first huge thing that, that actually he commands us to do is to reckon or consider uh, as factual and true what God has actually done. And that phrase looks back at the first ten verses where it talks about Christ's work on the cross and that we, uh, in some strange and mysterious way I can never explain, God allowed us to participate with Jesus' death on the cross and also to participate with him in his resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that we actually physically died or even, I don't, know, I don't know what it really means, but it does mean this, that by participating with Jesus in his death on the cross, our old man died. The old person we used to be is gone. The person who was under bondage to sin. Uh, and so he says, uh, we need to reckon that as true. We need to come to grips with the fact that we now are no longer alive in any way to sin. We are dead to it, and it no longer has power or influence over us. Uh, We are no longer in an active relationship with sin. It's dead to us, or technically we're dead to it. But then he goes on and he says the positive side of it. He says, you're also to reckon yourselves to be alive to God. Alive to God. One of the things I want to really focus on this morning is not so much the battle against sin, which we need to do. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We need to recognize sin no longer has power over our life. But if that's as far as it ever goes, we won't win win the battle, right? If our focus is only ever on sin, uh, we're never going to get past it. Uh, And that's actually only half of the equation because we died with Christ, but we also did what? We rose with Christ. And because of that partnership, and again, it doesn't mean that we, um, we're not going to die. We, we will die. Sad news. Um, one day you're going to wake up and, well, you're not going to wake up, right? And, uh, and there, will be a, there will be a final resurrection, right? This body will die. There will be a final resurrection and we will be fully resurrected. But the truth is that we have already, through our participation with Christ's resurrection, experienced some kind of resurrection life. We are now alive to God in ways that we were never alive to Him before. And overcoming sin means not only reckoning ourselves dead to sin, but it means grasping the fact and the reality that we now are indeed alive to God in ways that we weren't before. Uh, We have, in a sense, been resurrected. Uh, there's some part of us that was dead, now is alive. Um, and so we need to walk in that. He, he uh, restates it also in verse 13 when he says, you need to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, uh, brought from death to life. Okay, Interesting phrase. You need to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back to life from the dead. Right? Um, have you ever had days like that, you know, when you pretty much feel like you were dead, but you've been brought back to life? Well, as a believer, we ought to have lots of days like that. There ought to be a sense in which we live in this reality that I used to be dead, but I have resurrected. 
And I have new life now because of that. Uh, so, so what does that mean? What does it really mean to be alive to God? What does that look like? Well, uh, real simply, uh, it means accepting the fact that we have now the capacity and the reality of a new relationship with God. Before when we were in sin, uh, throughout Scripture, through Paul's writings, through Jesus' teaching, it's clear that relationship with God was impossible. We were dead to Him. Just as we were alive then to sin. And last week I gave the kind of morbid illustration of a true story of this lady who did not bury her husband, but propped him up in a chair so they could watch NASCAR together after he died for two years. Um, uh, sad, sick story. Uh, the great, great illustration of, uh, of relationship with the dead, right? Uh, there's no relationship when somebody has died. Well, previously, we were like that to God. We were dead in our relationship to God, un- unresponsive in every way to everything that God is. But he says, now you need to reckon yourselves alive to God. In other words, we now have the potential and the reality of true relationship with God. We can know and love Him. We can trust Him. And we can uh, be with Him living in His presence. Uh, we need to reckon that as true. Now, it's important to understand that all of those things are absolutely fully true through our participation with Christ in His resurrection. It's something we need to recognize and and reckon as true because honestly, a lot of times that doesn't feel very true, does it? Okay, A lot of times it feels that God is very distant. It may feel that God is not paying attention to us. It may feel like we don't have real and deep relationship with God. But he says, regardless of what you feel, you need to count on that as a fact and start living in the light of that new reality. You are now alive to God. You matter to Him. And you are in relationship with Him. Uh, well, what does, that, what does that really mean? Well, clearly uh, it means that we now live to God's glory. Uh, the great statement, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and... Enjoy Him forever. People know the first one. A lot of people don't know the second half. Uh, Being alive to God means those two things are both true for us now. We now live in a a capacity to bring glory to God. Well, what, what do we mean by that? Well, what we don't mean is this, that God is lacking glory, and somehow we do something that adds to His glory. Kind of like, you know, a dilapidated house needs a paint job to make it look better. And so we paint it and we, we glorify it. We upgrade it. Okay? That's not true with God. God does not need a paint job. Okay? God does not need an upgrade. There's nothing that we can do to add to God's character or being that upgrade Him and make Him more glorious than He would be without us. Uh, so what does it mean to glorify God? Well, uh, it really means that we reverence or awe or respond to the glory that He already has. Okay, When we were dead, uh, no matter how brilliantly the, the, the light and, radi- and the radiance of God shone, we were oblivious to it. Right? We were unresponsive to it. No matter how loudly the voice of God called out, our ears were deaf to His voice. But being alive to God means that now we're responsive to those things. We can now behold the majesty of glory and glory of God the splendor of who He is, and we can respond to that 
by giving Him worship, praise, and glory. We stand in awe of Him. That's what it means to be alive to God. We uh, experience Him. We live in His presence. We become aware of who God is. We can taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Um, that's what it means to be alive to God. And then secondly, we are able then to enjoy Him forever. And this is really important, okay? In the, this is not, a, this is not a, a luxury add-on, okay? And a lot of times we hear the word enjoy or joy, and we think, well, that's a unnecessary luxury, okay? When it comes to the battle of sin, it's not a luxury. If you are going to overcome sin in your life, you must learn what it means to enjoy God. You must learn what it means that the Lord is good and He calls you to taste of Him. Right? What does it mean to enjoy Him? Well, uh, you cannot give God glory without delighting in His person, His being. Right? Uh, best picture of this is marriage. Uh, you get married to your wife and you say, you know, I'm supposed to love you, dear. Um, I'm supposed to honor you. I'm supposed to respect you. But, you know, I just don't enjoy being with you. But that's okay because I love you anyway. Right? Try that one, okay? Um, it, it cuts the rug out from underneath. It pulls the rug out from underneath love, right? To be really in love with somebody, to really care about somebody, for somebody to be truly meaningful to you, you've got to enjoy them. You have to delight in them. Praise God. In His love for us, God wants to delight in us. And a lot of what He did in redemption is to bring us to a place where He can now delight in us because He's made us right and good and clean in Christ. And likewise, to be alive to Him is to now have the capacity and ability to enjoy Him, to delight in Him. To not only see and be awed by the wonder of who He is, but to be drawn to the beauty of Him. To see that God is beautiful and good and pure and to enjoy and delight in all his character and all his being. Uh, it's interesting, the, the, some of the images Jesus used to describe himself. Uh, he is to be the, the bread of heaven. Right? Uh, he is to be the living water. We celebrate Jesus' death by partaking in uh, communion. We, we do it by eating bread and drinking wine. Uh, we experience something of his grace by eating, by, by, by enjoying and those are pictures of what we are to have in relationship with Christ. We are to feed upon Him. We are to delight in Him. We are to drink Him in. I love the picture in John 4. It says He used to be living water springing up as an ever-ending gushing fountain. Never-ending, right? That's what it means to be alive from the dead. Now, for the first time in our life, we have the opportunity to experience Him uh, as living beings, Right? Um, let me give one more picture of what that, what that looks like. And part of the problem for us is that we probably don't really believe how dead we were before. And the, the problem is that when we come to Christ in, a, in an exper- experiential and feeling level, for a lot of us, you know, it wasn't all that dramatic. For some it was. Some it's, life's kind of the same. And when you look at the scope of your life, you go, I don't feel that much different than I did when I first came to Christ. Uh, so we don't really appreciate sometimes how really dead we were to God because we, we, we didn't feel dead to ourselves, right? Uh, so here's a picture of it. One of, my, one of my favorite movies I just watched the other night 
because it just teaches such great theology. Pirates of the Caribbean. Great, great theology. And uh, in, in that scene, the, the theologian in the movie is, is uh, the pirate, Captain Barbosa, right? And there's a scene in the movie, the first, first Pirates of the Caribbean, where he's captured the girl, and uh, he invites her to eat in his cabin, and he prepares this incredibly elaborate meal with savory, succulent meat and fresh fruit and apples and, and good wine and fresh, warm bread. And uh, she hasn't eaten for a while. She's starving, so uh, she starts to eat. And as, as she just, you know, consumes this food and is obviously enjoying every bite, Captain Barbosa looks on with this just incredible longing. And you just see him being drawn in and just, ex- as it were, experiencing every bite through her tasting of the food, right? And uh, you're kind of puzzled by his response and why he's so captivated by her eating this meal. And he finally offers her an apple. And at that point, she starts to get a little suspicious. And she's, she thinks that perhaps he's trying to poison her. And that this is his plot to poison her. So she takes a, a knife that's sitting on the table and uh, she stabs him in the heart with it. right? And Captain Barbosa just pulls the knife out and uh, unfazed, right? unfazed. And he goes on to tell her that, uh, that she can't kill him because he's already mostly dead. Right? And he's under the curse of the Black Pearl. And they stole Cortez's gold, which was cursed. And by taking that money, they took upon themselves the curse. And what the curse means is that they are no longer living, really, but unable to die. So uh, later in the movie, the, the moonlight shines on them, and they all turn to what? Skeletons, right? Because that's really all they are, is just walking dead men. right? And then Barbosa goes on to... to to say these incredible lines. I don't have them exact, and I can't say them as good as he does. But he says, you know, um, I cannot feel the wind on my face. I cannot feel the sea salt. I cannot uh, touch and enjoy the touch of a woman. I cannot enjoy the taste of food, right? And you see, he's dead. He is dead to the joys and pleasures of the world. And uh, later on in the movie, when he's trying to break the curse, trying to undo the curse, somebody asks him, what's the first thing you're going to do? And he says, I'm going to eat a bushel of apples, right? Because he realizes he is dead to all the joys, all the pleasures of, of the world. And he longs once again to taste an apple, to feel the breeze on his face, right? Because he's dead to those things. And he wants to be made alive to experience those things again. We have been resurrected. We are, have been made alive to God. Before the, the wind of His Spirit, the touch of His hand on our life, had no effect on us. We were dead to those things. But like Barbosa, we long for something, right? We knew that something was missing, and we longed for His touch. We longed to eat the fruit of His kingdom. We longed for the wind of His Spirit to blow on our face. But we couldn't feel it. So sin came along, and sin offered a cheap, shallow substitute. And we thought that was the real thing. But it wasn't the wind of the Spirit. It wasn't the fruit of His kingdom. It was a hollow, empty counterfeit. But we grabbed hold of those things because they brought momentary pleasure. Right? They satisfied our hunger a tiny little bit only for that hunger to come back stronger than ever. 
So what did we do? Well, we glutted ourselves on those things. If a little helps a little, then a lot will fix it. And so we poured our lives into sin, consuming ourselves on trying to fill our appetite by those things, trying to taste something, trying to feel something. And so we sinned and sinned and sinned, but because we were dead, it never satisfied, right? It never quenched our thirst. It never filled us. We were constantly hungry and constantly empty. But then we came to Christ and that old person died and we were what? We were made alive to Christ. We were made alive to God. And now we can feel the wind of His Spirit on our face. Right? We can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can drink in the living water and be refreshed by it. We can experience God's presence and we can live with Him. Right? And those are the things that satisfy. And that's what it means to be alive from the dead, alive to God. We now can experience Him. We now can taste Him. Uh, we can now live in the wonder of His beauty, experience the glory and majesty of His person. Right? And so Paul says, he says that's the, the fact, first of all. You've got you to come to know that that is true. That you've been resurrected, you are alive, you are now alive to God, and you can experience God now, in ways you never could before. Now, of course, the final resurrection, the final going into His presence will only increase uh, how much of God we can take in. And, and we look forward to that day. But we don't have to wait to the end of our life to experience it. He says, those things now are available to you. You've been made alive in Christ. You are now alive to God. You are those who have been brought alive from the dead. And there's a sense in which your life is already resurrected. Right, that you're not going to get any more resurrected. Our body will. But spiritually, we'll never be any more resurrected than we are now. We'll never be, in some senses, any more alive to God than we are now. Uh, the question is, are we drinking Him in? Right? Are we seeking to encounter and experience Him? Are we seeking to live in relationship, walking in His presence? You will never overcome sin. You will never win in your battle against sin until you draw into God's presence and come to know and experience Him. And here's why. Second thing. So that, that's the first, the fact. He says that's the, the, the truth that we need to reckon and come to terms with. But then he gives a couple uh, further commands of action on our part. And they're really unfolding consequences of that truth. Uh, and the first one, he says in verse 12, he says simply this, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. For sin will have no... And then verse 14, jumping around, verse 12, uh, do not let sin reign to obey its passions. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Uh, first thing he says is that in this new life we now have a new king, a new lord, a new ruler. Uh, and he says... Sin used to be your king. You used to serve and it used to be a horrible master over you that governed and controlled your life. He says, do not any longer submit to that king. Do not any longer give your body, give your members, give any part of your being to serve that master. Right? Um, and then he gives a promise. And the command is that. Don't do it. Okay, the command. Verse 14 is actually a promise. The promise is uh, sin will not have dominion over you any longer. 
Okay, so he gives a, a command, he gives a promise. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Again, that doesn't mean that you will be sinless. It doesn't mean that you will reach sinless perfection on this earth. Uh, it should mean you sin less, though. Okay, it should mean that sin is not the dominating force of your life. It no longer should control you and dominate you and rule over you. The two words that are used in those two verses, the first one is the idea of king, uh, to govern or to rule, to be king. The second one is the word that we, that we get the word Lord from. Jesus is Lord, kurios. Uh, it should not lord over you. Uh, and of course, uh, he, he ties that in verse 12. He says, it should not reign over you in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Interesting phrase. Uh, sin should not rule, should not govern in you, be your king, in order to make uh, the sinful passions of your mortal body uh, to give in to those, those lusts, those passions. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's a, it's important to note that there's a difference in our lives between our, our appetites and sin. Uh, he, he talks about the phrase here of our mortal body, uh, and it has to do, of course, with our physical body, but probably has to do with the larger picture of everything about our mortal existence. Uh, we live on this earth, in this body, in this temporary house, this temporary tent or dwelling. And uh, as such, living on this earth means that we need stuff. Right? Does anybody need more money? <laughs> no? Well, good, then you can give me your extra, because I need more money. Does anybody need lunch? Well, sooner or later you will, maybe not today. I could probably go a couple days without lunch. Someday I'm going to need lunch, right? We need stuff, right? And God has given us a survival mechanism uh, called appetite. An appetite means that we start to desire or crave or get hungry for stuff that we're going to need to live. So I get thirsty. It's an appetite. And it's a good thing because if I didn't have that sense that, you know, I haven't, drank, I haven't drank water all day and I'm thirsty. And if I don't drink water, what happens? Bad things. I've had that happen to me twice in my life where I got severely dehydrated. Believe me, it is not fun. Not fun. So appetites are a gift from God. And we have lots of them. Uh, They break down kind of into the following areas. Uh, Appetites for food, shelter, and protection. The desire for those things. The need to to have our, our, our sustenance met, to be living in a safe place, to be protected. We have uh, needs for love, touch, intimacy, and sexual contact. Those are needs or desires that God placed in us. Um, We have uh, the needs for purpose, meaning, worth, and significance. We need our life to count for something and to have meaning. Right, Uh, And with each of those are accompanying desires or appetites, right, wants, things that we long for. None of those in and of themselves are sin. Right? It's real important to know that. Uh, sometimes we get that confused. And we think that because we want certain things, um, that, that it's sin. But it's not. Okay? It's normal, what it means to be living in this mortal body. But what Paul says is that these, uh, these passions, right, uh, if sin rules them, we will obey those passions in unhealthy, sinful ways. So what is it that makes an appetite a sin? Well, it's real simple. 
any appetite, desire, need, want that we seek to fulfill apart from God, apart from His provision, His will, and His plan for our own glory is sin. Any appetite, desire, want, or need that we seek to fulfill by God's provision through His hand for His glory is not sin. So when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they got hungry. And God said, there's two ways you can fulfill that appetite for hunger. You can eat the fruit of one of a million trees I've given you, and that's my provision for you. Or you can eat the tree of the one tree that's not my provision for you. And of course, we all know what they did, right? They chose to take matters into their own hands instead of following God's provision to seek for their own self, for their own glory, by their own means for those needs. And that's sin. When we start desiring things and to fulfill those needs in ways that are apart from God's plan by my own selfish agenda, that's lust. That's craving or desiring to fulfill my needs apart from God. And that's sin. That's sin. And Paul says here that we should not let sin govern in our life. In other words, we should not let sin pull at our appetites. Right? You need things. You are hungry for things. You have desires. When we let sin rule, it means we're giving sin authority and control to meet those needs according to its agenda, its plan, and its purpose, which is always apart from God, not allowing God to be the one who provides for us. Uh, so the counter, the other side of that, and Paul doesn't say this, but it's implied. Uh, we don't let sin rule. We don't let sin lord it over us because we now have a new master and king. We, knew, we now have a new Lord, Jesus. Uh, and He is now king and lord in our life. Uh, back before the days of democracy, when, when the world was run by kings, uh, this made more sense. It doesn't really make sense to us nowadays because we don't have kings. But uh, if you've studied medieval history and you like kings and knights and all that good stuff, you know how the king thing works, right? Uh, a king was the owner of the land, and he had the big the castle on the hill, and it was stone and fortified, and he had big swords and, and knights who could like slay stuff, dragons and all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, so the king was Lord Protector. The king was the one who managed the land. And if you swore allegiance to the king, if you were loyal to him, the king would do a couple of things for you. He would give you land on his estate to farm to help provide for your physical needs. And the, the king promised to protect you. Right? All those knights in shining armor were there to slay the dragons and the enemies and the bad people. And so there was an exchange. You gave him your loyalty and devotion. He, in turn, took care of you, met your needs, and protected you. And that's really the picture of Jesus as king. Only he's a much better king because he has already won the victory. He ultimately fights all the battles, and he does invite us to participate with him, but it's mostly his doing, not really ours, right? And, he, and here's this important thing. He's promised to meet our needs. He has promised to protect and to provide, to be the Lord who takes care of us. Now, this is why this is so important in the battle against sin, because the, the battle to sin comes down to this. Your appetite's in, you scream out, right? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. We all become six-month-olds, you know. Wah, right? 
we want stuff, right? And sin, uh, sin comes uh, seeking to be Lord and Master. And the truth is that because when we were dead, we tried to meet those needs through sin, and we got some little pleasure, right? There's a part of us that goes, you know, it may not be perfect, but it's something, right? It may not have gotten me completely full, but at least I wasn't starving to death. And right now, I'm starving to death. And I think the only way I'm going to get that need met is if I turn to sin to meet that need for my life. When we do that, we're letting sin lord it over us. We're letting it rule. We're letting it be king, provider, protector. But he says, no, you've died to sin. You're alive to God. You now have a new master. And throughout Scripture, God makes it clear he wants to meet your every need. He wants to be the one who supplies who takes care of you. And it really is what, what Jesus did when he died on the cross. When we became, uh, we died to sin, we, we became alive to him. He is restoring us to the garden. Right? He's taking us back to where we lost it all, where we died spiritually when we got kicked out of the garden. He wants to take us back, back there, and he wants to supply your every need. He wants to be your provision. He wants to be your sustainer and protector. Right? Uh, will you let him be king? Will you let him be the one who is Lord, who grants you all that you need? Well, he longs to do that, and he's promised, and he will do it if we will trust him. Now, here's a disclaimer. I'll be honest, God's timing is really slow. You know, Honestly, sin and the shortcut of sin is much faster. Right? Uh, God's way is always involves difficulty and waiting and the long way. But His way, in the end, works, right? Because He knows our deepest need. He wants to give us the real apple, right? The real thing that will truly satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Uh, so He must be king. And here's, here's the simple truth. You will never let go of sin. You will never turn away from it as Lord and Master until you are convinced that God wants to and is able to meet your needs better than sin can. And until then, you're not going to want it to not be king in your life. And it's a trust thing with God. Do you really trust and believe God is loving and good, that He knows your every need, and He can supply and fulfill you a million times more than sin can? Until you come to that place in your life, uh, you're not going to want to let go of sin ruling in you. Right? You're, no, matter how much you, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you convince yourself sin is bad, no matter how much you convince yourself you're a bad person and you're being a bad Christian and you're failing God, until you know that God's going to meet those longings of your heart significantly, and significant, in, in ways significantly greater than sin, right? In the end, when your appetites cry out, you're going to turn and you're going to go back to sin. Right? So we've got to become alive to God. We've got to become alive to Him, devoted to Him as King. That means devoted to Him as provider and sustainer of our life at every level. Um, we also, he says, so, so we have a new King. We also have a new purpose. 
he says in verse 13, Do not present your members as, uh, to sin as instruments or tools for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments or tools for righteousness. Um, before we uh, used our bodies, and he used the word here, members, it can mean parts, it can mean limbs. It kind of has the idea, it can, it can mean actually tools or weapons, right? It has the idea of all of our capacities and abilities on this earth. Uh, and we are free to choose now to use those either for God's service or not, for evil service. And he says, you now have an, a whole new purpose in life. You now can live to God, which means to live to his glory, which means now everything that we, we do is to be done to reflect His purpose, glory, and power. Before, our purpose was to live for self and to glorify me. Right? So he says, no longer can you give the, the tools, the members, the parts of your body to living for yourself and to seeking your own glory. Uh, now you need to give those things to God to seek His glory. And here's the thing. Once we know, we've settled the fact that God's going to take care of us and provide for us, that our needs are met, we now have a new freedom to live life with a whole different kind of purpose. I don't need to live for myself anymore because I know that I'm taken care of, that God's looking after me. And now I am free to live to His glory and to do all things for His purpose, His kingdom, and His will. So we are very much on a new mission um, to please Him. And here's the, here's the truth in this. Again, if your battle against sin has been to stop sinning, right? That's good. Okay, you should, you should always try to stop sinning. But if that's as far as it's ever gone, my guess is for you it hasn't worked. It, it never worked for me, right? If I was just determined to not, not sin, and that was as far as it went. Because here's why. Idle hands always get in trouble. Okay, idle hands always get in trouble. Uh, little kids have tons of energy. It makes me sick. Just, it just makes me mad, right? But they got all this energy. They're just bouncing off the walls. I would take just one-tenth of that, right? And so parents oftentimes say to their kids, quit running in the house, right? So little Johnny sits down, and, uh, you know, he's not going to run in the house. So he's sitting in the chair, but pretty soon his feet are banging the chair. His, feet, his fingers are tapping. He's fidgeting, right? Because he's got all this energy, and he's just going to explode if he doesn't do something, right? And a wise parent will see this and go, you know, in about three minutes, he's going to be running around the house again. Or he's going to pick something up and break it. Or there's going to be trouble. So a wise parent says what? Go outside and play. Knock yourself out. Outside, right? Go out there and run. Run into something. Shoot something. Kill something. I don't know. Just go out there and do something, right? Because uh, that energy has to be released. It has to be unleashed on some something, right? It needs a focus and a direction. Same thing is true for us. If, you're, if your whole energy is just to stop sinning uh, and you become idle and empty, it's not going to be long before you're sinning again, right? Because you're bored. Because your life is not invested in a new purpose. But if you unleash the energy of your life serving God and you're committed to His glory, to serving Him, to giving your life out to others instead of, as before, living for self, now you can give yourself fully and completely to others. Pretty soon you're going to be too busy to sin. Right? Your life is going to be too focused on God's purpose and God's kingdom. 
that you won't have time or energy or interest. And your life will, will have value. It will have worth as you invest in God's mission, as you work with Him in His battle, as you serve Him. Finally, he ends this way. He says in verse 14, uh, For sin will have no dominion over you. It will not lord over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Uh, last thing, we have, we have really a new incentive to not sin. A new incentive, okay? A new motivation to not sin. Uh, what, what, what do you think would motivate you not to sin? Well, if you grew up like I grew up, uh, the, the number one motivation I had growing up not to sin was a belt or a big stick, right? Uh, and it wasn't because my parents used the belt to tie, my, tie me up with, although that would have been effective. It was because they used the belt to beat me with, right? And it was effective because I was afraid of uh, getting punished. I was afraid of that. Uh, so at some level, it was a great preventer of, of sin. But it was not a perfect incentive, right? Because what it forced me to do, it was only, only avoid sin where it meant getting caught or where there were the appearances of it, right? Where I could hide, where I could cover sin, where I could make sure nobody knew about it, okay, it was not effective. Okay, when I was at school, far away from my parents' belt and their knowledge, you know, I could be different, right? When I was not at school, away from that authority structure, and I was out with my friends in the forest in the middle of the night, whoa, buddy, okay, those uh, had no incentive on me anymore because I was pretty sure I would not get caught, right? Uh, Paul says we are under a new incentive. We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. What does that mean? Well, law, he's speaking here clearly of the law of Moses, which he talked about in the first few chapters of Romans. It is God's instruction. It is God's commands. Uh, the law is good in that it explains what is right and wrong. But Paul says that the law is never effective in changing our behavior. In fact, he says that the law actually causes us to sin. It causes us to do bad things. Uh, it, it magnifies sin. And what, what, what the law does is this. The law causes us to be good hypocrites, right? Hypocrite meaning actors, right? It, it forces us to put on a good face so that when I'm at church, I act churchy, right? I play the part. If I'm around my Christian friends, I play the part. I say the right things. I use Bible words and I quote scripture, right? But when I'm around a different crowd, when I am alone, when nobody's watching, the real me comes out. And the real me is, is, under, is governed by sin if I'm under the old system of law. Right? If that's my motivation, I'll sin every time. I will fall. Uh, sin, uh, the law, uh, is not effective in curbing sin. All the law is effective in doing is bringing condemnation. Okay, it just makes me guilty. And uh, when you're guilty, are you likely to do right or do more wrong? Well, it's interesting. Uh, they say that once somebody's gone to jail, the likelihood of them going to jail repeatedly greatly increases. In other words, condemnation is not a great prevention. It's not a great deterrent of behavior. Some do. But most people, once they start down that road, develop a habit 
of condemnation and guilt. And kind of the logic is, well, it's who I am now. Right? It's what I am. I can't help it. I'm just going to end up in jail, so I might as well not fight it because I'm condemned. Right? Uh, that's what law does. It says, I might as well, it's who I am. I'm a bad person. But there's no incentive in law to change us. Well, Paul says that's not, our, that's not our motivation. We're now under a new system. And the new system is the system of grace. Right? We are under grace. Now, at first look, grace seems weak and very ineffective as a motivation. And uh, the logic goes something like this. You mean to tell me that God's promised to forgive everything wrong I ever do? Yep, that's what he's promised. And that's supposed to keep me from doing bad stuff? I don't think so. And we jump back up to verse 1 and we say, well, since grace abounds, let sin abound so God's glory will shine all the more. Right? Yay, I am forgiven. Uh, the problem with that thinking is that it looks good, it may sound good at, at a distance, but if that's true, we don't really understand what grace is. We don't really understand what grace is. All right, here's what grace is. Uh, first of all, grace means that we did not get where we are by our own. Okay, there's nothing we didn't see. Law means we deserve it. Law means we did this. Grace means God did it for us. So when grace rules, it means that it's not up to us. It's not about what we can do. That we accomplish all this by being in Christ. Which back in verse 11, he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It is in Christ that, he, that the work is done. It is in Christ that we died to sin. It is in Christ that we rose again. It is in Christ that we stand before God right. It is in Christ that we will one day be resurrected to eternal life. It is in Christ that we have power to do the right thing. Right? It's not anything we've done. It is in His power. But grace has another powerful incentive in this. Uh, you know the story in, in Matthew chapter 18. I won't read it, but you know the story, the parable Jesus told of the, uh, the, the guy who owed his king a million dollars. Right? I don't remember how many talents, but we'll say a million dollars. Forty million baht. Okay? This guy is in debt in an impossible way. Right? And the guy works as a, as, a, as a plumber, and he makes you know minimum wage. And it would take 50 lifetimes for this guy to pay off his debt. So the king is going through his books one night, can't sleep, and he's checking off his accounts, and he discovers this incredible debt against him. A million dollars from a plumber. Right, So he has this guy arrested and his wife and his children. He has all of his possessions confiscated. And uh, all told, it adds up to about $50,000. So he still owes nine, uh, you know, he still owes 900000 950000 So he says, look, you're going to stay in jail and you're going to pay this off with your very life. Right? And what does the guy do? He realizes he's, he's over. He realizes his life is done. There's no way he can pay this back and that he will die in jail, poor and broke and penniless. So he goes and he throws himself at the king and he says, please, please, have mercy on me. I can't pay it back. Will you have compassion on me? Will you show me mercy? And the king says, you know what? I will. I will wipe clean your debt 100%. And I will show you my favor and my grace And you can go free. It's yours. You are cleared of all debt. So the guy walks out under grace. 
forgiven, cleared up, right? But then what does he do? Well, this guy's not living under grace. He's living under law. Even though he's been the recipient of incredible grace, he's not living by grace. And he finds somebody owes him a couple thousand dollars, and he grabs the guy by the throat and says, pay up. And the guy's going, I can't pay right now. Give me a couple weeks. He goes, no, right now. And he throws him in jail and his wife and his family and all of his possessions until he gets back the $2,000 that's owed him, right? And, and uh, the readers of the story are shocked and horrified. How could somebody who received so much grace be so heartless, right? And the implication is that when you have received much grace, you ought to be people who have much gratefulness. And when you have much gratefulness because of the grace you've received, you ought to be people of compassion and mercy towards others, right? That's what it means to be ruled by grace, to be ruled by grace, to know that you owed God an incredible debt you could never pay, ever. Not in all eternity could you pay back what you owed God. But God showed grace. And through Christ, He gave you life you did not deserve, right? And that ought to produce in us incredible gratitude, right? Incredible gratitude. God, how could you have been so kind and merciful to me? When you have that kind of gratitude, that kind of thankfulness, and and just uh, being staggered really by the weight of grace, sin gets really difficult. (laughs) You know, God, I'm grateful, you know, for all that grace stuff, but, you know, I'm hungry, so I'm going to go sin. That's tough, right? Uh, The more we come to really know grace, the more abhorrent it becomes that we would ever do anything that does not please Him. Because grace produces in us love for God and a desire to please Him, right? So what do we do with all this? Well, real simply, uh, our battle against sin will be waged really most effectively, not just in battling against sin itself, but in coming into God's presence, being alive to Him, experiencing His presence, tasting who He is, and really coming to know experientially the power of His grace in our life. right? To the point that it moves us to great gratitude and thankfulness, to worship, to giving our life to serve Him, to bring glory to His name because... We want to please Him because we are so thankful. If we're not there yet, we're not alive to God, right? And we need to to reckon with that truth. We need to understand what it means that we now have relationship with God to know and love and serve Him. Let's pray. Father, we just stand... uh, just constantly amazed at, at the depth of your grace. And Lord, really, we, we don't really understand grace fully because uh, we don't really understand how great our debt against you was. Um, Lord, help us to, to really understand that, to really understand how truly dead we were before, how lost in sin we were before Christ. And at the same time, help us to, by contrast, 
realize how alive we are now, how different our life is through the grace, through the work of Christ on the cross, through His blood, through His resurrection, that we are now alive to You, and that You do as a King demand our devotion and allegiance, but not because You are a harsh, mean taskmaster, but because You are a loving King who longs to meet our every need, who longs to supply Uh, the deepest longings of our heart, who longs most of all to give us Yourself an ever greater abundance, who longs to pour out uh, abundant grace. Lord, help us to live in that place and by it to break the power of sin, uh, to stir it within us a longing to live to Your pleasure and Your glory, to enjoy You and glorify your name, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.